from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read together from Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christian but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who wants to go to heaven when they die? Every Christian would say yes to that question. We all know what heaven is. It's the dwelling place of God. It's the place where God dwells in unapproachable light. It's the place where Jesus went after he was raised from the dead to sit on the throne at the Father's right hand. We want to get where Jesus is, don't we? And we know that not everyone is going to make it to heaven. And so the question comes up, how can we make it to heaven? The way to heaven is open for us through Jesus Christ. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has opened the way to heaven for us by suffering and dying on the cross. He's paid for all our sins and restored us to communion with God again. Yet there are specific means by which Christ brings us into communion with him and by which he keeps us living close to him. Lord's Day 31 teaches us about the keys by which the kingdom of heaven is opened and closed to us. Before he went up into heaven, Jesus told his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. Christ went up into heaven to exercise 
his authority from the throne at God's right hand. But he also delegated some of his authority to the leaders of the church. The pastors and the elders serve as Christ's representatives on earth. Christ said he would give them the means to open and close the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus gave the church two keys by which the kingdom of God is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. They are the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. Through the faithful exercise of these means, the way to God is either opened or closed. People are called to accept God's word as being true and to live out of it in faith and obedience. But if they do not positively respond to God's word, then the kingdom of heaven is closed to them. Thus we see that we're dealing with life and death matters in our sermon this afternoon. Let's submit our hearts and lives to the preaching of God's word. I summarize it for you under the following theme. Christ calls his church to administer the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We'll see that Christ has given two keys, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and the exercise of church discipline. In our Lord's Day, we are speaking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. To understand what the Catechism is talking about, we need to know what is the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom is a realm over which a king reigns. When we're speaking about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about all that which is governed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that with his death and resurrection, Jesus has been given ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. We know that Christ reigns supreme in heaven. All the angels listen to his commands and they obey him perfectly. All the angels and all those who have gone ahead of us into glory worship Christ day and night in the heavenly temple. Yet the question is, does Christ rule on earth? On the one hand, we would say, yes. God is sovereign over all. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is accomplishing his plan of salvation. Yet does Christ truly rule over the hearts and lives of the billions of people living on planet earth? Do all the tribes and nations know him? No. Do all who know Christ and what he teaches in his word obey him? No. Do we as Christians submit ourselves fully with heart and soul and mind and strength to loving God and obeying his commands? Unfortunately, not. The reason for this is the fall into sin. Prior to the fall, all of creation was included in the kingdom of God. God was king in heaven and on earth. He was acknowledged as king by the angels in heaven and by man on earth. Yet when man rebelled against God in paradise, he was expelled from God's kingdom. With a fall into sin, another kingdom was established on earth. It's the kingdom of Satan. He rules over the hearts of fallen man. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world in order to transfer people 
from the kingdom of Satan back into the kingdom of God. Paul makes this clear in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thus we see that it is Christ who brings us back into the kingdom of heaven. Through the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross, that he opens a way for us to enter the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation makes it clear that Christ has obtained the keys to God's kingdom. In Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, Christ says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In Revelation 3, verse 7, Christ makes it clear that he is the one who has the key of David. That he is the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. The point is that Christ, the point Christ is making is that the Father gave him authority to open the kingdom of heaven to those who believe in him and to shut it to those who don't. Christ has given this power to his church. In Matthew 16, verse 19, he said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And from John 20, verses 21 to 23, we see that Christ gave this authority to his disciples. After granting them the Holy Spirit, he said to them, If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And so we see the church is to administer the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Having seen that Christ has given his church a task to administer the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we now come to the keys themselves. So what's a key? It's a tool by which you unlock or lock a door. If you have a key to a door, you have the power to open or to restrict passage to what lies beyond it. In our Lord's Day, we speak about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So we're speaking about the means by which people are admitted or restricted from entering the kingdom of heaven. In our first point, we focus our attention on the preaching of the Holy Gospel. How does this serve as a means by which the kingdom of God is open to believers and closed to unbelievers? To understand this, we need to understand what the preaching of the gospel is. Preaching is what takes place in our worship services when the minister delivers a sermon. It's what happens on the mission field when a missionary speaks about God's mighty works of salvation to those who are willing to listen. In such situations, the word of God is laid before people. They're told about Jesus Christ and how he died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. And then the call goes out. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in him and you will be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a comforting gospel for those who believe. It focuses on how our Lord came into this world to deliver us from our sins and misery. It speaks about how through the sacrifice of his body and blood, Christ made atonement for us. Christ paid the price to restore us to covenant fellowship with God. He bought us as his own possession. We belong to him. 
Through Christ, we've been adopted as children of our Heavenly Father. We are heirs of everlasting life. Those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior may be certain that nothing can separate them from the love of God. He will care for us. He will provide all we need for body and soul. He will preserve us until the final day when Christ returns. Thus we see that the preaching of the gospel opens the kingdom of heaven to us. It assures us of life with God now and forevermore. Yet the gospel message is not a comforting message for all those who hear it. For some do not receive this news with joy. They don't believe that God is who he says he is or that he does what he has promised. Their hearts are cold. They reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Instead, they're more interested in being ruler of their own lives, of living how they want to. You see, beloved, the basic question every person, face, every person who hears the gospel faces is this. Are you going to be king of your own life? Or will you submit your wants and desires to Jesus Christ? Submission to another is hard. It goes against our nature. Our sinful nature screams, I'll live life my way. We want to be in control of making our own decisions in life. We don't, want to, we don't really want to have someone else telling us what to do. There are many people who find God's commandments restrictive. They will lie and cheat and steal to try to get ahead in life. They'll decide for themselves who they want to sleep with. If submitting to Jesus Christ means not doing what they want to do, they say, no thanks. But all those who reject the gospel of Christ, who don't want Jesus as Savior and Lord in their life, will be rejected by him on the final day. They'll come under his judgment and condemnation. Beloved, God's word makes clear there are two pathways that a person can follow in his or her life. There's the pathway leading to life and joy, and there's a pathway leading to death and despair. God tells us in his word, he desires the salvation of all people. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the Lord says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus lamented, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you would not. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the call comes to us also this afternoon. Dear brother, dear sister, 
On what pathway are you headed? Where is your life going? Are you walking with God, submitting to his word and will, enjoying his presence in your life? Are you trying to live life your way and finding that your life is pretty empty and meaningless? The writer of Hebrews speaks in chapter 4 about the promise of rest that God gave to his people Israel as they were traveling through the wilderness. He notes that although the gospel was preached to them, it did not benefit them, for it was not received with faith. The result was that God did not let them enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. Then the writer of Hebrews gets to his point. He quotes from Psalm 95 saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He points out that a final rest still awaits us today. He's speaking of eternal life. He makes it clear that none of us on earth have made it to heaven yet. And so he exhorts us saying, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Beloved, today is the day of salvation. Don't count on there being a tomorrow. You never know if there will be a tomorrow for you or not. Through the preaching this afternoon, the Good Shepherd is calling out to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our reading from Hebrews 4 concludes by speaking about how the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts two ways, to salvation or to condemnation. The writer of Hebrews imparts a final warning. He says that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we must give account. Beloved, let us heed those warnings and turn to God in repentance and faith. No matter how great our sins may be, God will accept all who come before him with a humble and a contrite heart. For him, it is a joy and a delight to grant salvation to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This brings us to our second point. We'll deal with the second key, the exercise of church discipline. Just like the preaching of the gospel, church discipline involves the bringing of the word of God. Yet instead of doing so in a general way to the whole congregation, it's now done personally to the one who is straying. In church discipline, those who harden themselves against the word of God are addressed. As the Catechism says, discipline is for those who show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life. Now, when we hear that word discipline, it often conjures up negative images in our minds. We think of kids getting a spanking or of elders going on a visit to tell someone off. We need to realize that the word discipline comes from a verb that means to instruct or teach. We see this more clearly from the, from the related word, to disciple. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commanded the apostles to make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he had commanded them. Discipline is not a negative process. Its goal is to lead and direct erring church members to the Savior Jesus Christ and to the life there is in him. In the catechism classes, the students learn that there are three main reasons why discipline is applied. The first is to keep God's name holy. To understand this, we need to remember that as Christians, we bear the name of Jesus Christ. We are Christ's representatives on this earth. If as Christians we blaspheme or use foul language, if we lie or cheat or steal, if we get angry with and mistreat our neighbor, then we are misrepresenting Christ to this world. Someone who bears the name of Christ and does not speak or live in a Christian way needs to be admonished. Otherwise, his or her unchristian conduct brings dishonor and shame on the name of our Savior and King. Second reason for applying church discipline is to keep the church pure. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 5 about how a little yeast works through a whole batch of dough. If sin is allowed to go unchecked in the church, it will soon infect the flock. Those of you in the building industry know how easy it is to pick up bad language. When you're surrounded by it day after day, it soon creeps into your own vocabulary. Those who regularly watch TV are often desensitized to violence. If you're constantly being exposed to people being beaten or killed, after a while it no longer makes much of an impression on you. The point is that if sin is tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ, then holiness and godliness will quickly fall by the wayside. A final reason for applying church discipline is to save the sinner from hell. Someone who shows him or herself to be unchristian in doctrine or life is a person who needs help. His or her words or, action may, or actions may be compared to distress flares that sent up as an urgent SOS. In many cases, such a person's life has crashed and their boat is sinking. In some way, their communion with God is threatened or broken. Their life is a mess. The problems such a person faces are often bigger than he or she can handle. They're adrift at sea with only a life jacket strapped to their back. For such people, church discipline should be like the boat or the helicopter that rescues them from death. Ultimately, the motive behind church discipline needs to be one of love. Love for the Lord and his holy name. Love for the church and for its purity. Love for the sinner and concern about his or her salvation. Church discipline involves coming to a straying brother or sister with the word of God and speaking about its promises and its threats. It's about showing the Lord Jesus to be a loving shepherd who will defend and preserve his sheep. It's also about showing that Christ is a righteous judge who on the final day will reject those who rejected him. 
Discipline involves calling people to repent from their sins. Asking them to put their faith and trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews speaks in chapter 12 about God's chastening his discipline. He explains that God disciplines us for our own good. He quotes from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, saying, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and and chastises every son whom he receives. From this we see that discipline is an act of God's love towards us. God means it for our benefit. Now the writer of Hebrews admits that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The point is that discipline flows forth from out of God's love. Through discipline, he wants to save our souls that we may share in his blessings. Beloved, please understand that church discipline is not, in the first instance, the task of your consistory. It's your task. In Matthew 18, Jesus makes it clear that if someone shows himself unchristian in doctrine or life, he is first to be repeatedly admonished in a brotherly way. That means you visit him. That means you speak with him. It means you open your Bible and read with him. And that you fold your hands and you pray with him. Not in a spirit of pride as if you're much better. But in humility. Quietly and gently admonishing and comforting. Our goal should always be to restore those who have fallen. Our motive should always be one of love. It's only if your brother or sister refuses to listen to you, if he or she hardens him or herself in sin, that you are to involve the elders of the church. Before the elders are informed, you need to have visited the brother or sister repeatedly, first on your own and later with witnesses. At times, our consistories come under criticism because it appears that they're not exercising church discipline as they should. Now, beloved, consistories cannot act if they don't know about a person's sinful lifestyle. And unless sin is of a public nature, it's often difficult for them to get involved. What I'm saying is that we as congregation members need to take our responsibility seriously. Do you not dare to stand up for the name of your holy God? Do you not care about the purity of Christ's church? Have you no concern about the eternal welfare of a straying brother or sister? Yes, it's true. It's often not easy to approach those who show themselves to be unchristian or in word or deed. A beloved, the thing we need to understand. We never go to visit on our own. Whenever we bring the word of God, God is there in power and with his spirit. Let's never forget God's word is the sword of the spirit. We're not called to save the sinner. 
Our task is just limited to speaking Christ's words of life. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. He will not allow that word to return empty. It will produce fruit one way or the other, either fruits of repentance and life or fruits of hardening and sin and death. Therefore, let us be bold. Let us be courageous. Let us show forth the love of God for our fellow brother or sister. When someone's sinning, speak up. And if you're being admonished, listen. Don't let personalities get in the way. Remember, we're dealing with life and death matters. The preaching of the gospel and church discipline are the means by which the great king opens and closes the doors of his kingdom. Jesus Christ has given these keys to his church to be administered for the benefit of the flock. It's through the use of these keys that Christ calls us into communion with him and keeps us living close to him. These keys are meant to spur us along the pathway of righteousness. They are meant to call us back from the pathway of destruction. For God does not desire our death, but our life. That's why he calls us to be faithful in administering the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. In response to the gospel message, we'll sing together from Psalm 95, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. <clears throat> 